Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Since we know the social environment influences us so strongly, that's not controversial. Nobody makes much note of it, but it's also true that the causal arrows go in exactly the opposite direction. So what's the social environment? It's the consequence in the aggregate of the, the individual choices we make. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Some of the episodes we do here are about people. Some of them are about institutions, about events, about forecasting. This one is about an idea. I've known the economist Robert Frank for over a decade now. Um, he's at Cornell University. He's a columnist at The New York Times. And in that time, I've watched him try to convince the economics profession and the world of one really big idea, which is that social context is a much more fundamental economic force than people realize. And if we realized it, if we rebuilt economics and much of public policy around that basic idea, we could make things better for everybody simultaneously at almost no cost. Because right now we're so caught in this idea of the individual agent, we miss how people really make their economic decisions, which are almost entirely in the realm of social pressure. Or not entirely, but heavily. And meanwhile, we are watching a version of this play out right now. Obviously, coronavirus is built upon the dynamics of contagion, but so too is social distancing. The, the, the single, there's no doubt, the single largest transformation of human behavior, fastest transformation of human behavior in history, that has come around in large part through social pressure, through knowing that if we go out and we don't wear a mask, although some like the president have managed to get around this, that if we invite people into our house and if we go uh, around people too closely, that we will be looked down upon. You can see the power of it and how fast it has made an unbelievable world real, an unimaginable world real right around us. A couple months ago, Frank published a book called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. It's all about the economics of social pressure, of contagion, and how they could reshape the way we approach things like climate change, public health, taxation, how we could rebuild economics and public policy around these ideas. And if we did it right, if we understood it clearly, actually solve some of our biggest problems. It's a really hopeful book in a way. And it allows us to take a look at something happening around us right now, the sort of power of contagion 
for good and for bad. And imagine how we might use this lesson to solve real problems, right? Not just respond to a crisis, but to solve climate change. In my case, to think about um, meat eating and animal agriculture, to deal with inequality in a very different way. So this is a little bit of a heady podcast, but if you can if you can latch on to what he's saying, it's one of those things that initially it seems kind of obvious, but if you really appreciate its power, it can change everything. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Here is Robert H. Frank. Robert Frank, welcome to the podcast. What a pleasure, Ezra. Nice to talk to you again. So this book turned out to be relevant. Yeah, you never know when you write something, uh, whether it'll be timely. Princeton's publicist told me it was the very worst environment to launch a book that he'd ever seen. And and uh, I think the the sales of books and the and the lack of general interest in them is is consistent with that. But uh, I'm hoping eventually people will will discover that there's something of relevance in the message of this book. I, th- I think this podcast is going to turn it all around. I'm, I'm sorry to hear <laughs> that the sales of the book have been backing that up for you. But I, I mean, so I got the book from you a couple months back. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I should, I should take a look at that. And I'm a fan of yours, as you know, going long, long back. But I figured I, I kind of know the the Robert Frank oove. And then coronavirus hits, and not only is it all directly about networks of contagion and how do people interact socially and what does that do? So it kind of literalizes this idea of social behavior as um, affecting other people. You can see it on a chart now. But also then in the response to it, we can talk all we want about state lockdowns, but fundamentally what is happening is a tremendous amount of social pressure for people to live their lives in a radically different way all at once. People yes. are getting arrested for not being six feet away from each other most of the time, but there is a social pressure to do it. And for a like literalization and demonstration of how rapidly the ideas of that you're writing about in this book can reshape human behavior, I can't imagine a better and worse in some ways demonstration. Yeah, it really does bring it to life. So tell me a bit about what led to the book. Well, as you know, I've been uh, writing about how our spending patterns influence one another. Uh, that's that's really kind of an old idea uh, that long predates me and one I've been working on for a long time. But but I think the the generality of how strongly we influence one another really has become clearer to me only gradually over time. I don't think I was really in a position to write this book until fairly recently. And it, it grew out of a column I did in the Times uh, a couple of years ago about smoking. We regulated smoking starting in the 80s. The tax rates went up uh, on cigarettes. The the places where you weren't allowed to smoke kept expanding. Uh, and And we justified that by saying that the studies were coming out of Japan showing that exposure to secondhand smoke really did make the incidence of certain serious ailments more likely. And so we had the classic rationale for regulation, the the John Stuart Mill harm principle. We could finally invoke that and say we need to regulate smoking because exposure to secondhand smoke is harmful to other people. It's the same rationale we would use for for regulating pollution or noise or dangerous features of automobiles, things of that sort. But a lot of people didn't feel completely comfortable about that because the the harm from secondhand smoke, it's real. I mean, it's not to challenge the Japanese studies, but the level of injury associated with secondhand smoke is tiny 
compared to the level of injury that is associated with actually being a smoker. And, and there maybe you want to say it's not the government's job to protect you from harming yourself. That was certainly John Stuart Mill's position. But the, the real harm you do, uh, and it's much greater than the harm you do to yourself, is when you smoke, you make others more likely to smoke. And I don't think we ever seriously considered that as a rationale for smoking. And, and when I wrote that column, I got a lot of pushback from it. Uh, and I think I was sympathetic to the, the sentiments that motivated some of the pushback. Uh, you know, people have agency. It's not the government's job uh, to, to specify which pure behaviors you ought to be influenced by and which ones you ought to try to avoid. Fine, fine, that's well and good. But there are a whole lot more people involved in the picture than that. Uh, I, I know you've got a, a son now. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to ask you whether you hope he grows up to be a non-smoker because I'm quite confident that you do hope that. All parents hope their kids. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that they'll grow up to be healthy. And, and growing up to be healthy means, in part, being a non-smoker. Uh, you're much less likely to be healthy, healthy if you're a smoker. And so uh, having done everything you can as a parent, uh, there's only so much you can do. If you work too hard at that, uh, you're going to make your kid more likely to smoke, not less. So what we know is that you're much less likely to succeed at raising your kids to be non-smokers if a lot of their friends smoke. Uh, it does, it, if you're worried about whether they'll smoke, it doesn't help you at all to know that they're science fiction fans, that they're, they're good in math, that they're, they're uh, fans of the LA Dodgers. None, none of that predicts anything. What you need to know is the fraction of their friends who smoke, and it's a huge effect. So if, if that number would go from... 10% to 20% or from 20% to 30%, that's the figure I actually have, uh, your kid will be 25% more likely to become or remain a smoker. Uh, that's a, that, there's no other effect that's remotely that big. And so when you smoke, you make other people more likely to smoke and that makes millions of parents around the country less likely to succeed at what's got to be considered a perfectly reasonable goal. So I think the regulations that we adopted, which did uh, have a very big effect on the, the smoking rate, was uh, three times as high a few decades ago as it is now. That's why so many fewer people smoke now. That's why you're so much more likely to raise your son successfully to be a non-smoker. And the real harm that people were doing when they smoked was to make people less likely to succeed at that goal. So. So yeah, I think uh, it, it was that conversation that let me led me to write write the book in the first place. You know, to confront the objection that we shouldn't try to tinker with the social environment uh, because people have agency. Yes, we have agency, but the psychologists have known this for a long time. They they, they have a slogan: it's the situation, not the person. Uh, and by that they mean when we see somebody do something. We typically try to explain it by by invoking traits of character or personality. They no, that's not that's not the right way to think about it. It's the it's the social environment that's far more likely to be the the decisive influence on on why she did what she did. And since we know the social environment influences us so strongly, that's not controversial. Nobody makes much note of it, but it's also true that the causal arrows go in exactly the opposite direction. 
So what's the social environment? It's the consequence in the aggregate of the, the individual choices we make. It's the smoking rate, for example, is the number of us who smoke divided by the total number of us. So, so we constitute the social environment, but our own effect on it is so small that nobody worries about that. Uh, and so, of course, we don't take into account the fact that we influence the social environment, but the world would be a better place since we know the social environment influences us so strongly, both for good and, and often for ill, as in the smoking example. Uh, why not try to encourage people, if there were any practical way to do that, to act as if they cared about their effects on the social environment? There's a lot in there. And I want to zone in on a part to begin, which is this idea that it is not controversial, that the social environment shapes our behavior so profoundly. Because I think it is simultaneously consensus wisdom and something we don't truly believe. And this, in many ways, is what initially caught my eye about the book, which is in a lot of stuff I've been studying over the past couple of years, from political polarization to some of the moral questions I try to cover on this show, like um, how do we interact with climate change or, or, or animal ethics, I've certainly come to believe that much more of our cognition is social than we want to admit. It sounds obvious, and everybody would say, of course, yeah, what my friends does matters. But you've amassed a lot of evidence here uh, uh, about just how determinative it is. And, and, and I want to hold there for a minute because I think that until you really appreciate that, sure, you have free will, but that will, it, what you want to do with your will is tremendously shaped by what you see your friends and peers doing. Like a lot of things in society don't quite make sense. And a lot of what the true levers are to achieve social change stop making sense. And I think a lot of mistakes in our public policy come because we think too much about the individual and too little about the collective conditions. Oh, I, I agree completely with what you just said, Ezra. I said it's not controversial that the social environment influences us very strongly. It's also true that we have no idea how strongly it influences us. Uh, I think the people who study it, even they underestimate the extent to which they're influenced by it. They, they understand that other people are influenced by it very heavily, but they think they're not. Uh, and so I think in general, uh, it's way more powerful an effect on us than most of us realize. And so I want to get into some of the things that I think follow from this. So let me give one example. In a lot of debates right now, particularly if you're in kind of left or progressive circles, there is a tremendous emphasis on how ridiculous it is to talk about, say, climate or really anything in terms of individual behavior. It's systemic problems. It's things that governments are doing, corporations are doing, public policy is doing. And I want to zone in on climate here because it's one of the ones I think about a lot. Um, John Saffron Forward just wrote this book, and it was about climate and meat eating and other things. And there was this review in The Nation that was mad at the book because it's not that Forward didn't say that the public policy solutions are central and the most important and all in the end that really matter. But he also said there's an individual role. And what strikes me as so obvious once you take this sort of social cognition at its individual and political levels into account is that we are not going to, as a society, as individuals in a society, vote for things that make us feel like bad people. 
So until people begin through the social pressure of their peer communities to take climate change seriously, to think it is bad, to do things that are wasteful, to think that driving a giant SUV you don't need is something that will be looked down upon as opposed to admired because you're rich and powerful and successful, or that eating meat is you know, a problem for reasons of animal ethics or climate change, nobody's going to vote for bills um, or for politicians who are proposing bills that make them feel like a bad person. And so there's this way in which I think it's very hard for people who have been uh, an attraction, as I do, to macro scale political solutions to accept that individual behavior like is going to have to be the um, forerunner of it because it's like that individual behavior that'll change the way the social dynamics work. And it's only once the social dynamics change that people are going to vote for policies that push those social dynamics further. Um, Smoking was similar to this. People believed at a point that smoking was bad, bad for them and bad for others. And so they were willing to vote for things that institutionalize that and made smoking harder, more expensive, et cetera. But before they believed that, when smoking was cool and awesome, they weren't going to vote for that because you don't vote for a law that says the cool, awesome thing you do is bad and you should feel bad about it. That's not how people work. Yeah, I I, I think uh, that was one of the most eye-opening features of working on this book for me because I was very firmly in the camp. Being an economist, uh, most of my fellow economists have, have long been very skeptical of the individual action approach to solving these kinds of problems. The The uh, I don't know if, if you use the term conscious consumption, uh, uh, as I understand it, it refers to steps you take individually, uh, usually at some cost to yourself, to reduce your carbon footprint. So it's eating meat less often, driving less often, and, and riding your bike or walking and, and instead. Things you can do to help limit your, your emission of CO2. Economists were always quite disdainful of that as a, as a thing to push because they thought it was a, at best a distraction that what we really need is a, a steep carbon uh, fee and dividend uh, policy and a huge investment in in decarbonization, green energy infrastructure uh, and the like. And, and if we focused on these individual things, that would be a distraction from what we really need to do, which is the big policies. And, and I still think we need the big policies. If we don't have those, we're not going to solve the climate problem uh, for sure. But I don't think of the individual actions any longer as uh, an obstacle to getting those policies. And so part of it is is the the contagion effect. So in, in the case of solar panels, uh, one of the early, early influential studies showed that if we had a new adoption early in the cycle, uh, then within four months on the average, that would spawn a copycat installation, uh, one that wouldn't have occurred except for people having seen the first one. It's kind of hard to uh, sort out which ones would have occurred anyway, but, but they've got ways to do that. So four months later, you get a second one. Each of those continues to spawn new, new copycat installations. They're more likely if they're on the front of the house than if they're in the back where people can't see them. So you've got four after eight months, eight after a year. And then and then by the time you're two years on, uh, you've got 32 installations coming from just that one. So you get huge effects, much more than you ever would have imagined from the individual uh, action alone. But the main reason I changed my mind is, is more in line with what you said, which is that when you take these actions uh, at some expense to yourself, that changes who you are. Uh, you know, the, the Aristotle, 
Aristotelian view that you don't come into the the world with fixed identities and and preferences as as we economists traditionally assume. You you sort of become the person that you are, and so taking these individual steps uh, gradually makes you into a climate advocate. Uh, you're someone who's much more likely to vote for the laws that we need to adopt and and campaign for the the politicians who are inclined to en enact them, go out and knock on doors to help get them elected. Uh, it, it really is a useful step on the path that, that you and I, I think both have, have long felt we needed to be on. One of the things that you've been doing, you do it in this book, but it has been running through your career for a long time, is trying to get economics as a profession to better appreciate social pressure as a force that is driving a lot of waste and a lot of problems. And this is something that I think it would be easy to skip over because I think probably you feel like you've written about it before and, and I've read you writing about it before, but I think probably a lot of people don't know the argument. So could you talk a little bit about your basic theory of positional goods and expenditure cascades and how that has created a kind of inequality race that we could use public policy to shut down to everybody's benefit without anybody actually being all that much worse off, if any worse off at all. Sure, you know I think there's there's been in the the U U.S. and the U.K. in particular, but elsewhere too, uh, since the time of Reagan and Thatcher, there's been a, a, an emphasis on uh, what I'd characterize as a naive misunderstanding of Adam Smith's invisible hand, uh, the the fable that if you just turn self-interested people loose in the marketplace and tell them to seek their own advantage, that will somehow end up uh, indirectly getting the best of all possible outcomes for society as a whole. Uh, Smith didn't think that. He never said that. Uh, what was Smith's contribution was that you often got good results when selfish people pursued their own interests in, in the marketplace. He didn't think you always did. And there are lots and lots of situations where what it's in my interest to do as an individual is absolutely not in our interest that we all do. So, so just for the most familiar mundane example, when we all stand to see better. If you stand uh, in front of me at a concert, I can't see, so I stand too. Soon we're all standing, yet none of us sees any better than if we'd all remain comfortably seated. That's not uh, something we regret doing. If you sit down in that situation, you don't see at all. So, so you're rational to stand. It's totally uh, the right thing to do individually, but collectively, you'd all be happier if you could figure out a way to remain seated during the concert and and, and not leave feeling tired and 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 run down. So situations like that are endemic in life in general. I think it was Jar Darwin's central insight that life is graded on the curve. And so as a as a parent, uh, it's it's naturally near the top of our list of things that we care about that our kids get to go to good schools. Uh, what's a good school? Uh, it's it's necessarily a relative concept. Uh, it's a school that's better than than other schools in the area. And what we know is that the good schools everywhere on the earth that I've been, uh, and and I'm sure everywhere else are are the ones that are located in the more expensive neighborhoods. And so if you're if you're the median earner and your ambition is to send your kid to a school of average quality, just average quality, what must you do? You must buy access to the median priced house for your area. 
And that's where we see uh, the cascade uh, because what's happened over the last uh, decades, since 1970, really, seven, uh, early 70s anyway, is that virtually all of the income growth in the United States has gone to people at the top of the income ladder. Very little growth outside the top fifth. Uh, if you look within the top fifth, it's mostly uh, in the top 5%. If you look within that group, it's mostly, mostly in the top 1%. And uh, within the top 1%, uh, most of the gains there have come to the top one-tenth of 1%. And as far up as we can see, that's the pattern. The people at the top have been building bigger and better. That's what people do at every income level. It's not a moral failing, really, that they do that. People in the middle don't seem to be offended by that. Uh, on the contrary, they like to see the pictures of the yachts and the, and the mansions. Uh, it's the people just below the top who travel in the same social circles. Maybe it's the custom now in the top tier to have your wedding reception uh, at home for your for your daughter when she gets married. Uh, you need a ballroom big enough to accommodate an orchestra and hundreds of guests, and so you you build a, a space that that can do that. And then others just below you, uh, they they need bigger, so they build bigger too. And now it's the custom in the group. Below them, they need di di space for dinner parties for 18, not 12. They build bigger. And so you need a process like that uh, to explain why the median new house since 1970 went from 1,500 square feet to 2,400 square feet. It's not because the median wage earner has higher real income per hour. No, they don't, the real wage is about the same as it, as it was then. What's changed is that other people like you are spending more. If you don't spend more too, then you don't get the house in the median school district. It's your kids who'll go to the schools where the other sco students are in the 20th percentile in reading and math, and they have metal detectors out front. Nobody wants to do that. And so the middle class now they're working two jobs. Uh, uh, they're they're working long hours. They're they're buying houses further from the center because land's cheaper there. They're working. They're they're borrowing more. They're saving less. They're working every margin they can because that's what it takes to keep pace set by the higher spending level at the top. That's the expenditure cascade. Wedding receptions now thirty six thousand on average. Uh, in real terms, it was twelve thousand in nineteen eighty. And the rub is that beyond a certain point, uh, there, there's a very large, very contentious literature on the determinants of human well-being. And the one most robust finding in it probably is that beyond a certain point, and it's one we've passed long since in the West, when everybody spends more to build larger houses or stage more elaborate wedding reception, uh, the only effect of that is to raise the bar that defines what we consider adequate. Uh, nobody gets any happier than before. Those are all dollars that could have been spent in ways that we know for certain would make uh, a real difference in how people live, and we don't spend them that way. That's that's the 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 monumental failure of economic policy in the era of the last four decades. We have allowed inequality to dictate expenditure cascades that have steered a bigger and bigger fraction of our nat national income away from public investment and toward private consumption that's not really doing anything for anybody. Let, let me dig in on a piece of that, which is there's this idea of positional goods and, and, and non-positional goods. And you've given over the years surveys asking people about 
you know, would you like this big of a house given that others have that big or this big if they have, you know, some other value for it? And you've done that also with job danger and, and, and other things. So can you talk a bit about what can you explain those survey experiments a little bit and, and and what they show? Because I think this idea and trying to separate what is a good where our motivations are to achieve relative advantage over someone else and what is something we buy or need that is outside of that competitive dynamic is really powerful once you uh, absorb it. Sure. I think the simple way to to encapsulate that is two very elementary thought experiments. Uh, you're, you're to imagine a choice between two worlds. Uh, maybe your own world's about to blow up. You got to migrate to a new one. There, there, there are actually two places you could go, and conditions are going to be the same as described forever in these worlds. So you shouldn't think of going there and and reworking them to your advantage somehow. You can go to world A. If you go there, you're going to live in a 4,000 square foot house in a neighborhood where that's how big the houses are for, for everyone. All the other neighborhoods in that world have houses that are 6,000 square feet. Okay, that's world A. You could go to world B. There, you'd be living in a house of 3,000 square feet. And the other houses in your neighborhood would have 3,000 square feet too. But the other neighborhoods, all of them would have houses uh, with only 2,500 square feet. So it's a choice between absolute advantage. That's world A. You'd have a bigger house there, 4,000 square feet rather than 3,000. If you choose world B, you would have relative advantage. Your house would be smaller, but it would be bigger than the houses in other neighborhoods. So the question is, and there's no right answer here, which would you choose? And empirically, what we find is that a substantial majority of people, even though they feel they shouldn't care about how big other houses are, a majority of people choose the world with 3,000 for them, 2,500 for others. That's in direct contradiction to the basic assumption of most economic models, which say that the utility you get from a house depends only on its absolute characteristics, so the size of it, the number of bathrooms, the location, and so on. You're not crazy to make a choice like that necessarily, because as we just discussed, uh, if you are in the world with 3,000 square feet for your house and 2,500 uh, for the others, uh, it would be your kids going to the best schools. Uh, if you're in world A, it would be your kids going to the crummy schools. Uh, so it's it's not the right answer to choose uh, 3,000 square feet, but it's not an unintelligible Answer. So that's what we see when we ask about houses. Uh, if we ask about other other kinds of things that are good to have, uh, let's take work, workplace safety as an example, we see uh, a strikingly different pattern of answers. So here, here's the parallel thought experiment. Uh, you could go to one world where your risk of dying on the job would be four in 100,000 each year everybody else would have a risk of dying on the job of two in 100,000. So your risk of job, dying on, on the job would be twice as high as everyone else's. Uh, you could go there or you could go to the other world where your risk uh, would be eight in 100,000 of dying on the job each year and everyone else would have a risk of 16 in 100,000 
of dying on the job. Here, I've never seen anybody choose to go to the, the world where their risk would be twice as high as in the other world. Everybody chooses absolute safety. My risk of, of death is four in 100,000. Everybody else has two in 100,000. Rather than try to solve my, whatever chagrin I might feel about having a relatively unsafe job by moving to a world where my risk of death would be twice as high as in the first world. No, that's not, that's not a step I'm willing to, to take. So, so these are two different kinds of goods, in effect. One, one housing is a positional good. That's Fred Hirsch's term. It's a good that takes its value primarily from how it compares with other goods in the same category. The other good is safety. That's desirable too. Uh, it's non-positional. It's not that we don't notice or care about how much relative safety we have. We, we may care about that, but we're not willing to make much of a sacrifice in absolute safety in order to gain any advantage on the relative dimension. So when we have different goods like that, where we care about the relative stocks of them we have more in some domains than in others, that's what gives us the, the fundamental distortion in our spending patterns that comes from behavioral contagion. When others build bigger houses, the deprivation people feel as a result of that, whether it's from the school district effect or from some, some other reason, leads us to try to match what they do in that domain. How can we get uh, resources to match it? Well, we can take a riskier job because as economists have always known, you get paid extra when you work in a ris riskier job. So we can we can get some extra money to match the bigger houses by working riskier jobs. Well, I kind of want to stop you there because I think something we're learning right now is that a lot of people are in jobs that have been made very risky and they're not getting paid that much. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And that's a disequilibrium. I think when we try to fill jobs going forward, once it's well-recognized, that there is a substantial increase in risk associated with those jobs, which were not until now viewed as risky uh, in the slightest, we will see a very different wage structure emerging for those jobs. Uh, right now, I think people are still willing to take those jobs because the alternative is no job at all. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. 
burrow.com slash box. So something that is in this theory is this idea of expenditure cascades, which is as people at the top of the income structure, be it because they want a good school district or often just because they want to be seen as the winners of society, as they set off these positional competitions with each other, they cascade down. And you don't, at some point, if you're making 75000 bucks a year, realize that you are making some of these purchases in fashion and other things to com- like to deal with the downstream effects of things that very rich have been doing in their consumption. But your view and your argument is that you are. And so I want to move to something that now runs through not just your work here, but but is going to run through a bunch of your other arguments in this book, which is that you think we can do a lot on this through taxes. And an inversion you make in the way this argument would normally be structured, or even the way I would normally think about it, is to say, like, the implication here is not simply that we as individuals can break these social cycles by understanding like our role in the social contagion and acting differently, but that what we primarily need to do, and you see this, and you argue this across climate and other places, is to use the tax system to break these cycles of consumption um, such that it is economically costly to act in a way that creates these negative social competitions or contagions. So why don't we start here in the positional good example? Do you want to talk about a kind of highly progressive consumption tax and why you think that's a good idea? Sure. What what I've proposed for, for many years now, as you know, is, is that we scrap the income tax and replace it with a much more steeply uh, progressive t- tax on consumption spending. And that sounds dauntingly complicated. Oh my goodness, we need to save receipts for everything we buy to document document how much we had spent and so on. But no, you don't have to do that. You would report your income to the IRS uh, much as you do now. We we should simplify that, obviously, and, and it would be easy to do that. Uh, report your income, then document how much you've saved during the year. Uh, we do a version of that for tax-sheltered retirement accounts now already. So we, we've, we've, we've more or less mastered that. The difference between those two numbers, your income for the year minus how much you added to your savings during the year, that's how much you spent during the year. And if we then took a big standard deduction off that uh, difference, we would have your taxable consumption the rates would start out low or, or even zero if the number uh, of taxable consumption dollars was small, but then it would escalate and it would escalate much more sharply into a much higher level than under the c- current income tax because there we're constrained by the fact that if we tax income too heavily uh, at the top, we discourage savings and investment. Uh, we don't have that worry with a consumption tax because higher taxes on consumption actually would stimulate additional savings and investment. So it's just a way of saying that if we think this expenditure cascade is wasteful, if we think enlarging the mansions from 50,000 square feet to 75,000 square feet not only doesn't make the people living in them any happier, but probably even makes them less happy because it's more hassle to manage those big properties, then when people would think of adding the 25,000 square foot addition onto their 50,000 square foot mansion, that would now cost them twice as much as before to do. 
And you might say, well, they're rich. Uh, why would they care? They could afford to do it anyway. But we know that prices matter even for people who can afford to spend any sum. So in, in New York City, a billionaire lives in eight or 10,000 square feet. That same billionaire would live in 30 or 40,000 square feet if he lived in a different part of the country. Why? Because prices per square foot are so much higher in New York. That means that it would cost a lot more to build bigger in New York. But not only that, the norms that define how much space people feel is adequate in New York shift accordingly. You, you feel like 10,000 square feet is huge in New York, whereas it wouldn't feel huge, uh, an ordinary uh, 10 millionaire could afford that uh, in some other part of the country. So that's the basic argument. We could give people a very strong signal that spending less on those things would uh, be in their interest individually to do. It's not in their interest now to do because others are spending more. And so it's in their interest to spend more as well. If others spent less, people would feel less pressure to spend more themselves. And so it would be completely painless to avoid the next round of escalation on those types of expenditures. And the dollars that we would save in the process are dollars that we know we could spend on decarbonizing the economy. That's something we desperately need to do and would be very expensive to do. But we've got lots and lots of money, so we could raise the money to do that. Right now, we rely on a private business model for healthcare. That model has very low investment in surge capacity for hospitals. It has very low investment in research for pandemic uh, viral diseases and, and vaccine development. It would be much, much better since we know we're going to confront those challenges going forward to spend a much higher fraction of our national income on those things uh, going forward. And we have enough money to do that. It's just we don't have the incentives to steer the dollars to those uses, but it would ver be very easy to create the incentives. But we also don't, in a way that strikes me as important here, have the, I don't know what you would call it, like the like the pervasive ideological superstructure. Um, and, and, and the reason I say that is I think that naturally what will come to somebody's mind, including mine when I've read this idea in the past is okay if you begin to impose a steep consumption tax across the um, society, well, what's going to happen as you lose demand in the economy, as people stop spending? And you would say save and invest. And, and as you say here, you're, you're thinking about that heavily in terms of public investment. But in part because we are so consumption-oriented, again, in part because of the incentives of a lot of positional competitions, though I should say not only because of positional competition, we are much more comfortable with economy led by that kind of private consumption demand than an economy led or driven in any real way by public investment decision making. And I think part of that goes to something else you talk about in your book and has been a critique of yours against the rest of the economic profession, which is this belief that revealed preferences, what, what individual consumers spend their money on, are a truer measure and a more reliable long-term driver of economic decision-making and value than sort of public decision-making processes, political processes, et cetera. That it's like what we really spend, if what we really spend money on is, you know, bigger and bigger houses, it must be because we really want bigger and bigger houses or bigger and bigger cars. Whereas, you know, what happens um, from the public sector, well, that's just going to be cronyism and public choice economic or capture, you know, all these things that the public choice economics uh, sub-discipline, you know, arose to combat. 
you know, I don't I don't think the typical consumer has any concern at all about whether he or she lives in a consumption-led economy or a public investment-led economy. That's not something most people even think about. The consumption patterns that we get uh, are a consequence of people following what's in their individual interest to do. If you believe the invisible hand narrative, you think, well, well and good, that's going to give us an optimal distribution of, of resources between all forms of private consumption and between private and public investment and so on. Uh, if you think individual interests and public interests don't coincide, which is the, is the very nut of the positional competition argument, what is in the interest of the individual to do is very much not in the interest of us to do collectively. It's in our interest to stand to see better. It's not in our interest uh, to do that collectively. And so the, the people who would benefit from a consumption tax would, would not uh, feel any sense of deprivation that they were in an investment-led economy rather than in a consumption-led economy. They would spend less on consumption because consumption got more expensive. Uh, the revenue from the tax they paid would finance public consumption that we know from the studies of the determinants of well-being would make their lives better. One of the worst things you can do uh, is drive through heavy traffic uh, for an hour each day back and forth to work. That makes people less healthy, less less happy, more likely to get in fights with their family members when they get home or with their coworkers when they get to work. Public investment could get people to and from work uh, in a less stressful way, and people would not sit there regretting that there had been public investment if there was some that 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 brought that benefit into their lives. So I think I, I wouldn't really worry about the political economy concerns of ordinary citizens uh, if we voted for greater public investment and people saw the fruits of the greater public investment. They'd feel they'd feel fine about that. But I, I'm going to push back on you for because I think you're doing a sort of like a, like a political version of an assume a can opener, and this is what I'm I'm, I'm getting <laughs> at, which is that yes, if you could get through, you actually have a nice example here of Stockholm's congestion pricing, and this is a policy in Sweden in Stockholm where they basically charge people to drive through the center of the city, and it was incredibly unpopular when they proposed it, and incredibly unpopular when they passed it, and it has to do with Sweden or Stockholm, sort of unique levels of political trust and you know trust in civil servants and so on that they got through it. But the the, the guy who runs it says um, because the policy ultimately becomes incredibly popular, he says if you can get through this valley of political death, right? If you can get through that yes. valley of political death between where people hear about it and where you get it, then you can get to the other side and things are great. And I what I hear you saying here, and I think this is actually this is part of the book I want to argue about with you, or at least like like explore a bit with you is that you're sort of the valley of political death is a real problem in a lot of these ideas. Um, there's a chicken and an egg problem to this sort of behavioral contagion approach to these issues, which is to say that if you are having the behavioral contagion in the wrong direction to start with, you're not going to be able to pass the policies that will get it in the right direction. Like you spend a lot of time on a carbon tax for climate change, which I support, or cap and trade for climate change, which I support. Um, but part of the problem is that because there has been so much work done to turn people against taxes, 
they don't want to vote for policies like that. They keep not passing because they're quite unpopular, including, by the way, in blue places. I mean, Washington state had a very big initiative um, on the ballot to try to create a carbon tax just a couple of years ago. And they have, I think, probably the most uh, capable governor in the country on climate change in Jay Inslee, and it crashed and burned. Um, and so there's this way in which on a lot of these different policies, I agree with you that if you get to the other side of it, it would be great. But part of what I'm trying to point out there is that to use the the positional good issue as an example, for so long, we have built a set of public values and a conversation around the good of private consumption and the bad, corrupt, inefficient narrative of public sector of public sector investment, that it's actually hard to just pass the policies to get you to the other side of that. It's like, okay, you have this huge consumption tax and what? It's all going to the government to do what with, right? Why should the most powerful argument on tax cuts, which George W. Bush always used very effectively, is the government should let you spend your own money. And the idea there is, of course, you will know how to spend it better than they will, um, which you're a little bit taking issue with. Not that you would know how to spend it better, but that maybe people have been locked into a competition, which is hurting them, even though it's individually rational. But I don't think you can just kind of jump over the degree of um, like social change is what require. It's one reason why, to me, I was surprised you didn't focus a little bit more on like, how do you get people to change how they're individually relating to these social conditions and ideas um, in the book? Well, let, let me first try to reassure you that I'm not naive to the, the challenge of making progress on this front. Uh, I, I would call it my first real book uh, was published in 1985. The title was Choosing the Right Pond. Uh, it had the guts of this positional competition argument all laid out clearly in it. It came out in January of that year. I thought uh, when it came out that uh, by, oh, maybe the fall uh, term in, in the House and Senate, there would be bills wending their way through both of those houses, incorporating my ideas for how we could shift the distribution of spending in the country. Of course, nothing at all like that has happened in the, in the decades since that book came out. Uh, I've made essentially zero progress in, in persuading people to adopt these policies. So, so yes, I accept your observation that this is a, a very tough nut to crack. Uh, so that's point number one. On the other hand, is it not worth continued effort to explore these issues in conversation. I, I, I very rarely have any regrets about not being extremely wealthy, but uh, if, if I had wealth of the level of Mike Bloomberg or, or Tom Steyer and wanted to influence the, the political conversation, I think what I would do would be to go to Pixar. I would hire away their best animation team and I would construct a 10-minute video uh, explaining why tax increases to pay for public investment would be essentially painless for the people who had to pay them. Uh, and and it's, 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 it's as we just rehearsed, a very simple argument. There, there's no progressive scheme on the table that's going to threaten a rich person's ability to buy what she needs. Uh, that's that that's not going to happen. Uh, what would they be worried about? Well, they won't be able to buy the special extras that they want. Okay, that's a fair thing to worry about. What are special extras? They are, by their very nature, things that are in short supply. There aren't enough of them for everybody to have one. A, a, a penthouse apartment with a 
360-degree view of the city and the harbor. People all, all in a certain circle all want that apartment. How do you get those things? They're scarce. Uh, you have to bid against other people like you who want them. And if you pay higher taxes and the people like you who also want that apartment pay higher taxes, your relative bidding power in those kinds of auctions is completely unaffected by that. And so what that means in effect is that those dollars are free. We can give them to the, the public investment bucket uh, have them fund increases in hospital surge capacity, have them uh, build stocks of ventilators, have them invest in vaccine research, have them fix the roads and bridges, have them invest more in the schools, all without making any painful sacrifices in the private sphere. That's a simple story. There is not one serious behavioral scientist in the country who would dispute the main premise behind it, which is that beyond a certain point, further increases in many forms of private consumption don't really produce any measurable impact on health or satisfaction. And so why wouldn't we want to do those things? Uh, I think if people understood that raising the revenue to decarbonize the economy and to be better prepared for the next pandemic could be achieved without requiring any painful sacrifices from anyone, why wouldn't they want to do that? Why wouldn't they want to vote for politicians who would propose to do that? And, and in the case of Jay Inslee, who's one of the politicians I most admire on the scene, yes, he fought valiantly for that measure, but he was outspent by the fossil fuel industry by orders of magnitude, perhaps even. They ran a huge ad campaign and managed to persuade people. But, but if we had the resources to explain the way a carbon dividend fee and, and rebate scheme would work, it's impossible that it wouldn't pass. Think about how, how it would work. The, the top 10th of the income earners worldwide use half of all the energy. It's less skewed than that in the US. So if we did it uh, here, it wouldn't be quite as dramatic as that. But most of the revenue would come from high income people. Most of the revenue from a carbon fee would come from them. The low in income people use much less energy than, than others. They'd pay in much less of the carbon fee. If we then took the, the revenue from that fee and gave it back to the people who'd paid it in in a progressive fashion. So uh, high-income people don't get anything back. Low- and middle-income families get a monthly rebate check. Those low- and middle-income families would get a rebate check each month that was bigger than the amount they had paid in in carbon fees that month. So simultaneously, they'd have an incentive to switch to more carbon-light uh, methods of production and consumption, they get more money to spend each month on, on things that they care about. Why couldn't you get a majority of people to vote for that? Uh, so I, I, I think laying out the case clearly, but then investing in the communication to ex explain it to people is just that's an unavoidable set of steps that we've got to go through. Yeah. And, and it's tough. It's something that always strikes me on this and I think goes to to the heart of it. I mean, the climate change example is very specific in the sense of there's been a huge and multi-decade, extraordinarily well-funded um, effort by fossil fuel interests to, to stop that from happening. But even in this broader issue of consumption versus investment, something that more economists took seriously in the mid-20th century is the idea that the growth of the advertising sector 
which you will hear on this podcast if you have listened through the ads, that that is a distortive economic condition. I mean, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a lot about this and this idea that advertising is going to matter in terms of shaping and reshaping people's demand um, structure and demand uh, priorities. And so we have billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars spent every year trying to get you to want everything you could possibly imagine. And it again, it supports things like, say, the media. But the idea, like there's nothing like that for bridges, nothing like that for a lot of forms of public investment to say nothing of decarbonization. And it's interesting. It's something that when I go back and read like mid 20th century economic debates, it was all over them. I mean, it was just constant. And now you almost never hear about it at all. Like it faded into the background of the economic discourse. We just take it for granted. I think people assume advertising is not that effective on the margin, but of course it's effective in some way in the aggregate. And it, it just strikes me as another way in which people have, particularly in the economics profession, occasionally just stop looking at what is right in front of our faces, maybe because to look at it too clearly would be a little bit too disruptive. Yeah, I, I've got a couple of reactions to that. One is I think it's true that we have much less information about the potential gains to us in terms of quality of life and, and other things we care about uh, of additional investment in the public sphere. That's partly because nobody's telling us what those gains would be. Nobody's dramatizing them in the way private product advertisers manage to do so successfully for their products. So I think there's a very strong case for spending more on that kind of information production. Uh, again, as I say, if I had a great wealth, I would spend uh, a, f a fair amount of money on exactly that kind of messaging. Uh, and there's a good case that the government should be spending more on that too. The idea that we would have efficient spending patterns if there were no private advertising, I think though does not square with what we know about human behavior. Uh, the, the problem in, in the house uh, example that, that we talked about early on is that no matter how much everybody bids for a house in a good school district, half of all kids out there are going to go to bottom half schools. That's just a, a, a constraint imposed by the mathematics of musical chairs. And so uh, if you and I bid more intensively for a house in a better school district, that's totally rational for us to do as individual families. But the aggregate effect of that is merely to bid up the prices of the houses in the better school district. Still half of the kids go to bottom half schools. The only way we solve a problem like that is through collective action. So you could say, exhort people to save more. The, the nudge movement uh, uh, says we need to remind people that uh, saving is a, 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 an important thing, uh, that they'll eat cat food in retirement if they don't sa save, or we need to make participation in 401ks a default option. Well, that's important to do. I agree, but that doesn't solve the problem because if you have access to your savings, some families are going to take their savings and bid for a house in a better school district. And if you don't do that, it's your kids who go to the bad schools. So, of course, you'll do that, too. How do we keep people from doing that? The only way we manage to get enough uh, income into people's hands in retirement where they didn't have to eat cat food, a, a large fraction of them, was to give them a social security check each month. And the only way we could do that was uh, or the only way we figured out how to do that was to tax 
payrolls to generate the revenue that would then be used to finance the checks to them. They did not have access to savings that they could raid and use for, for bidding for a house in a better school district. So an absence of advertising, we would still end up with a gross consumption imbalance. People would be uh, involved in arms races uh, left and right, and we wouldn't get the mix of spending that would be best suited to promote healthy and prosperous lives. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. One of the things that I think the book raises, and it's something I think a lot about in other contexts too, is that, as you say, these social conditions, social contagions are built out of individual behavior. Any one of us is small, but collectively we're big and collectively just is an emergent property of each of us. And so one easy takeaway might be that you want to push in the direction of a social context that you think is better. So on climate change, you know, living a lower carbon lifestyle for me on animal issues, being plant-based, um, you know, being more concerned with issues of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's all there. And you talk about gay marriage as an example in the book and, and, and other things. And at the same time, there's also a way in which that stuff can backfire, right? There's a lot of complaints about PC culture. There's clearly some level on which people pushing and scolding and creating a social environment where people feel that their choices are being judged and that they are being judged creates a counter reaction. And I'm curious if in your looking at the researcher in the research, you develop views on how much is enough and how much is too much um, for people to do individually. Because like what you don't want to do is create a situation which does seem to happen. Um, and you can see it in sort of like how like college activists are treated sometimes, where it's like you're trying to change the social dynamic and in doing, you create a backlash that overwhelms your efforts. Yeah, it, I've never felt really comfortable with the whole shaming strategy for for trying to change people's behavior. Uh, although I, I, I'm sure it has uses in some contexts, but as an economist, I've always been sympathetic to the the leverage we have with taxes. Uh, first of all, we have to tax something 
uh, right now we tax lots of things we shouldn't tax. We tax a lot of things people do that uh, don't cause any harm to anybody. We could raise, I've, I've long contended, we could raise all the revenue we need to, to pay for even the most expansive vision of a, a just society by taxing only activities that people engage in that cause measurable harm to others. I think the, the smoking example uh, is, is very instructive here. We taxed cigarettes much more heavily starting in the 80s. Uh, by itself, though, we know that the higher prices of cigarettes uh, would not have had anything like the impact that we've seen on smoking rates. Uh, smoking is very highly addictive. Uh, I had a friend who was a heroin addict. He told me that it was much harder for him to quit smoking than it had been for him to uh, go off heroin. It's a, it's a very addictive substance. Tax it more heavily, people will still smoke. Many still do, of course. But what we know is that some people will quit if, if it becomes more expensive, if it becomes less convenient. A few will quit. When those few quit, every peer group has fewer members in it who smoke. That means fewer others in those peer groups will start smoking. That means fewer still will, will, will start smoking in the future. And if you don't invoke those contagions as part of the process, you don't see a decline in the smoking rate from 45% down now to 14%. Uh, it just wouldn't have fallen anywhere near that far. And so taxation just builds on the old John Stuart Mill idea that if you cause harm to others, that's a, a legitimate reason for the society, the collective, to weigh in against what you want to do. It's the least coercive of all, all, all possible ways to tell you not to do what you're doing. It doesn't force you to stop what you're doing. If you have a hard time abandoning whatever it is that, that's causing harm to others, you can continue to do it, but you pay a penalty for doing it. And so we get an enormous amount of mileage with minimal interference with things people care really strongly about if we focus on the tax approach. Is the tax approach right for every problem? Probably not. My wife and I argue about whether seat belts should have been mandatory. Uh, she, she, she says, obviously, yes. I, I, in my foolishness, sometimes say we should have taxed people for not uh, uh, wearing them in, instead of requiring them. She said, once we require them, everybody got used to it, and so nobody cared anymore. Uh, she's probably right about that. But people would have gotten used to wearing them if we if we tax not wearing them. Too. Just real quick, how would you tax not wearing a seatbelt? Do you mean just give people tickets? Yeah, which we do, which we do anyway. That's that's how we that's in effect what we do do. So what I'm sorry, I'm actually just curious about this argument. What is the difference between saying you have to wear a seatbelt and we'll give you a ticket if you don't and taxing people through giving like how would you how would the tax work? Well, in the case of smoking, it's clear that we're not saying you can't smoke. We're saying, yes, you can smoke, smoke all you want. In fact, just you can't smoke here. You can't smoke there. You can smoke in those other places. And if you smoke, you pay much more than uh, in the past. That's what we say in the case of smoking. A ban on smoking would be a completely different animal. The example of helmet requirements, uh, it's the law that you wear helmets. Uh, a lot of people are very angry about that. I've suggested that uh, we, we don't need to be as he heavy handed about insisting that people wear helmets. We could we could give people the option of not wearing them if they pay the DMV $300 a year. They would get a, a decal that they could put on the, the back fender of their motorcycle that said they had paid the fee and they were therefore re uh, entitled to ride without a helmet. Uh, the effect of that is that many people would wear helmets 
And the main barrier that, that many people feel to wearing helmets is that they would look dorky if they wore one. And if enough, enough other people were wearing one, they wouldn't have that fear, fear to worry about. And so uh, we would collect a little revenue in the process. We would uh, give a, a safety valve for the people who really didn't want to wear a helmet. That's, that's the, the essence of the difference I'm trying to call attention to. And so when you sort of begin to net all this out, we're in this coronavirus pandemic and all of a sudden the way in which contagion works is very manifest in our lives, both in the sense that we can give the disease to people based on how we act socially and how we treat others for acting socially, and that we can keep the disease from spreading to people, again, based on how we act socially or, or don't act with others socially. And I think everybody understands, like when you log on to media and people are yelling at folks on the beach, this is all just social pressure um, manifesting itself. Right. And so I, I guess as a kind of like way to begin to close out the conversation, what has this made you think about the thesis of your own book? Because I can't think of an example in there or an example from another time in my life where we have watched social behavior change so rapidly on such a dramatic scale, largely because of decisions people made about what was acceptable for others to do socially that they then sort of like enforce again, primarily through social pressure. Like, are there lessons from this for the rest of it? Or is it such a distinct situation, given that it is being caused by a, a global pandemic, that it just doesn't tell us that much about how this can be applied to other issues. Well, you you see it in the in the response to the pandemic. You don't see it in response to climate change, uh, and that's interesting. I think if you if you would look at those two threats, they're both very serious. Obviously, uh, the the COVID threat is, I think, by any reasonable measure, far less serious than the climate threat. If we did absolutely nothing about the COVID threat, uh, it would create horrible devastation. There would be people dying in the in the corridors on girdies and not even able to get into the hospital. We've seen it happen in, in small uh, cases here and there uh, around the world, but uh, it would th sweep through the population uh, and it would be over until the next pandemic came along. The climate issue, if we get to plus four degrees Celsius or plus five degrees Celsius. We know that at some point there are very poorly understand, understood positive feedback processes that get triggered. There, there was a recent study that said if we get to a certain CO2 concentration, there would be no more cloud cover anywhere on Earth. And, and if that happened, then the temperature rise, in addition to whatever other rises that we were seeing from, from other causes, would be an additional plus 14 degrees Celsius. And that would mean essentially the end of life on the Earth. And so failure to act on the climate crisis has vastly more serious consequences than failure to act on the COVID crisis. But the consequences in the COVID case are immediate or they're very short term. The, the climate ones are, are not as long term as we thought. We're seeing some pretty serious costs arising uh, day by day in the climate case too, but they're they're much more long-term and less immediate. And and I think that's the main reason that you don't see uh, the the impulse to shame others and, and take immediate social action to try to restrain people from actions that are going to ultimately cause far more harm even than, than failure to social distance will in this case. So I think that's a good place to bring it to a close here. So 
I'll ask the question I'll ask you to end the podcast, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you that you think others should read? The climate book that had the biggest impact on me, I, I've been writing a New York Times column for uh, a decade and a half or so, and I write about climate often, and I follow the literature fairly closely. I, I don't write just about that, but I thought I knew the literature pretty well. I was astonished uh, on reading David Wallace Wells's book, uh, It's the Uninhabitable Earth. The first sentence in it, I think I've got it right, is, it is worse much worse than you think. A chapter or two in, and I, I, I knew already, it is much worse than I had realized. Uh, it, it's way, way worse than, than uh, any of the, the narratives I had seen had managed to, to convey. Uh, and so that book was enormously influential in my thinking. thinking it's not a, a doomsday book by any means, as, as he emphasizes, uh, we have well within our reach the means to do something about this crisis. Uh, if we if we are buried by it, it will be because we chose not to act. So that that was a very important book for me. Longer term, the one thing that is probably the most important shared feature between the the corona epidemic and the climate crisis is that uh, what it's in our individual interest to do is not often in our uh, collective interest that we do, uh, and and the book that I think makes that point in the in the very most clear, readable, and informative way is one by the late Nobel laureate Thomas Schelling, uh, uh, my economic uh, intellectual hero. Uh, the book title is Micro Motives and Macro Behavior, uh, an absolutely marvelous book. I know you have three slots for these recommendations. Uh, I I will. Uh, deviate from the form by uh, recommending that uh, your listeners, if they haven't already, uh, go back into your archive and queue up uh, the episode uh, in which you interviewed the, the engineering climate expert, Saul Griffiths. Uh, that was a, a conversation that had a more profound influence on my own thinking about climate-related matters uh, than even the Wallace Wells book. It was the nuts and bolts of uh, what we would need to do uh, to actually take effective action to limit the crisis uh, of, of warming. Uh, it would require, as he outlined so clearly, a mobilization like the one we did in World War II. But the, the main uh, takeaway from that for me was that we could do this uh, and, and, we, and we should do this. Well, that is a very kind final recommendation. Um, your book, of course, is Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Uh, Robert Frank, thank you very much for joining us. Ezra, what a pleasure. Thank you to Robert Frank for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.